Welcome to Present Value. Hi, Present Value listeners. I'm Sarah Doyle, an MBA student at Johnson and president of our consulting club. I am excited to share this episode with Hernan Sainz, partner at Bain & Company and a member of the Cornell faculty. The conversation draws on Hernan's 20-plus years of experience in management consulting. Hernan takes listeners through how to formulate and implement an effective strategy, and then explains how digital changes the way we should approach strategy. I hope you enjoy the episode, and as always, subscribe, share, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at PresentValuePod. I'm your host, Jonathan Tin, and today I'm excited to welcome Hernan Sainz to the studio. Hernan is a partner at Bain & Company and leads the largest practice area for Bain, the performance improvement practice. Hernan has over 20 years of consulting experience across the globe, specializing in corporate transformations, cost and operational turnarounds, and large-scale change efforts. Hernan holds an MBA from the Johnson School, a master's in industrial labor relations from the ILR School here at Cornell, a master's in economics from Stanford, and a bachelor's in economics from Harvard. At Cornell, he is a member of the faculty at the Johnson Business School, teaching the popular course Cases in Business Strategy. Hernan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jonathan. Delighted to be here. So fun fact, we are recording this on Johnson's Admitted Students Weekend, where you will be the keynote speaker tonight. And the first time I heard you speak was one year ago and my very own Admitted Student Weekend. So I wanted to take this opportunity to say thank you for your continued support of the Johnson School. Well, that's wonderful to hear. And it is an honor and it's humbling for me to be asked to be the keynote and to share my experiences about what it was like to be an MBA at Cornell. So I thought we'd start off today with the topic of strategy. Here at Johnson, you teach a popular course called Cases in Business Strategy, where students learn the process of effective strategy formulation and implementation. In the business world, the word strategy seems like such an overused and ill-defined word. To lay the groundwork for our discussion today, can you define what is strategy? Yeah, and you're absolutely right. I think that the word strategy gets overused and it doesn't get defined enough. I'm going to define it in a couple of ways. The first one is, I think strategy is the science of allocating scarce resources. And therefore, it is the science of making choices. And there's essentially two types of choices you make when you're doing strategy. Number one, where to play. What customers, what products, what geographies, where are you going to focus? And secondly, a set of choices around how to win. What set of capabilities are you going to be best in class at? And how do you combine them into an operating model that is actually uh, not replicable by your competitors? That's the first part of strategy. But making choices is not enough because strategy is not a plan. Strategy also must be a set of actions. So I believe that strategy is also a proprietary set of actions taking place in the marketplace, typically executed by the front line of a business. Something you discuss frequently is the strategic planning process. Can you explain what is the strategic planning process and how often does it need to be completed? The process of formulating strategy, which is what I like to call it because Strategic planning often gets confused with financial planning. So I like to separate it and call it the process of formulating strategy. At the highest level, feels very simple because you start with a diagnostic of the business. Where are you at? What is the gap between where you're at and what can be the best? Secondly, a set of choices informed by that fact base. And then thirdly, a mobilization. So at the highest level, The strategic process feels very simple. And yet, of course, I work in an industry that is enormous and highly profitable. And a lot of what we do is run those processes alongside and partnering with clients. Why is that? I think it's very easy theoretically to think about it. It's like sitting down and thinking about how to ride a bike. You get on the seat, you put your feet on the pedals, and presumably once you put the feet in the pedal, you're going to roll. Well, that's not how it happens. You end up falling and bleeding a little bit in your knees. So what we end up doing is having to work a lot with our partner clients on how to implement these processes. Let me describe the types of things that often go wrong. For example, 
in the first phase, which is where you build the fact base, the diagnostic, the strategic foundation, one of two things ends up happening. The first one is that there's no rigor in collecting or understanding the facts. In some ways, like you go directly to formulating the strategy and you forget to ask about the customers, about the competitors, about the trends in the industry. And so in a sense, you start flying blind from the very beginning. The other failure mode is what I call analysis paralysis. And that's essentially folks who analyze and analyze and analyze and collect data in a data-rich world and never move to choices. There's also problems in formulating choices. And what we typically observe is that it's hard to make choices. It's exciting to target all customer segments and have many products and operate in many geographies and have operations in as many areas of the value chain as you can. And nobody can be that good. You have to make where to play choices and they're just not made enough. There's not enough focus in the market. There's also a lot of thinking about where to play and not enough thinking on how to win. There's enough of what might be my target segment, but not enough about what are the set of capabilities that you're going to put together in a best-in-class way that is not replicable by your competitors. And then probably the biggest problem is that what's discussed in the executive suite actually does not go all the way to the front line. And so there's a lot of failures in implementation. And part of that is failure to communicate, although many companies are getting better at that. But it's often has to do a lot more with not thinking enough about the front line, not thinking enough about the people in the shop floor and the people in front of the customers. And those people are the champions. They are the kings. They are the ones that deliver your strategy. And if you are not thinking about them in the boardroom, you're probably missing a big implementation step. So let's get into choices and actions a bit deeper. Can you elaborate on those proprietary actions you mentioned by taking us through an example or two? Yeah, so for example, let me use one that will be familiar to a lot of people. Southwest Airlines has made very specific choices of what they are going to do and not going to do. And let me focus on the Southwest at the beginning. They basically said, look, I am going to have one type of aircraft so I can keep my costs really low. I am mostly going to build a point-to-point -point system so that I can have incredible utilization. I am going to land primarily in secondary airports and therefore keep my costs down. And so they were able to offer something that nobody else could replicate. Other airlines, other legacy airlines tried to replicate the model, but they had too many types of aircraft. They were landing in the big airports. It was just not a replicable model. Now, in addition, of course, to creating an amazing cost structure and an amazing network, Southwest actually did an amazing job at creating a culture that makes the customer feel incredibly welcome by what is the friendliest and most accessible staff in the industry. In your 20 years of advising companies, what have you found to be the elements of a good strategy? And is it only something you can identify after the fact? Very good question. At the highest level, let me first describe how I think about a good or a successful strategy. And then let me share with you what our research says. The first thing is, I can never guarantee that a strategy will work. The world of business is not the world of engineering. I can't architect a 90-degree angle and build a 90-degree angle and be sure that I can deliver a 90-degree angle like it can be done in the engineering world. Our world is a world of probabilities. And so if you do certain things, you are more likely to actually succeed. And if you fail to do them, you are less likely. So let's realize we're not in the prediction world. We're in the probability world. With that said, what are components of good strategy? Number one, they have to be informed by facts. If you don't understand your customer, your market, the trends, and your competitors, you're likely going to have a strategy that doesn't work. Number two, it has to target value creation. You have a set of investors. Those investors are looking for something. It's typically bottom line and top line growth. And if you're not targeting that and have a mechanism to deliver that, it's probably not a good strategy. As I said before, it has very clear trade-offs. There are clear choices. And those happen at a number of levels across geographies, 
across products, across customer segments, across channels, etc. Good strategies make choices. Good strategies say no to a large part or some part of the market. They're also based on an understanding of the core business. They are based on really understanding what you're good at. So not dreaming about what you could be good at, but really understanding where you are world-class. They go fairly deep into what I call how to win, which is understanding what are the rules of the game, how customers procure, how competitors are likely to respond, and then defining a business model that is either based on cost leadership or differentiation or some other angle, and then defining some repeatable motions based on capabilities to actually win in the market. So that's what a good strategy is. Now, have we actually studied this? And the answer is yes, we have. So we've studied this multiple times, looking back 10 years in a number of large economies and looking at publicly traded companies. How would you define a good strategy if you were studying it? Well, probably total shareholder return. Who actually delivers very high total shareholder return? It's typically companies that do three things. Number one, they grow the top line aggressively. Number two, they grow the bottom line aggressively. And number three, they deliver way above or at least above the weighted average cost of capital. So not surprisingly, many companies in their business plans say that they're going to outgrow the market. On average, a business plan says it's going to outgrow the market 2x on the top line, 4x in the bottom line. We know that's not true. And so what we have studied is how often this is true. And what I'm going to describe for you is that there's a category of companies called sustained value creators. And sustained value creators are the companies that deliver continuously top-line growth, bottom-line growth, and performance above the weighted average cost of capital on a sustained basis, and therefore have exceptional total shareholder returns. How often does that happen? This is what's scary, 10%. One out of 10 companies is a sustained value creator. Is it driven by the industry? About 20 to 25% is just simply the current of the river is actually helping you. But the short answer is no. Probably 75% of what determines success in the market is actually the choices within an industry that a management team is making. On the choices that management teams make, companies seem to be stretching their boundaries further and further. A company that comes to mind is Amazon expanding from a internet book company into general merchandise and even web services. So how often do management teams fail to define these boundaries correctly? And do they tend to define them too narrowly or too broadly? That's a very rich question. So let's answer all of them in turn. Do companies stretch their boundaries too much? The answer is yes. Probably the science of strategy started in wars. And in wars, particularly in the ones that were fought many years ago, the concentration of forces at the point of the battlefield was the way to win. It didn't matter if you had the largest army, you had to have the largest army at the moment of truth. I think it's the same in business. You choose your battlefield. This is the word to play choices. You out-invest your competition. You have the larger army. That allows you to out-execute, and then you will generate higher returns, which allows you to out-invest the competition again. And I think that is the virtuous cycle of business. So what do management teams that are amazing do, to your question? They do four things. They are incredibly focused. They focus on a well-defined core business. Number two, they push that business to its full potential, to its maximum economic and strategic potential. Number three, they're super disciplined. They don't stray from the core. They don't diversify. They don't pursue sexy trends. They are very, very disciplined in pursuing moves outside their core. We call them adjacencies, working within your adjacent market. And particularly important in today's era, 
they are very attentive to trends in case they need to redefine their core business. Why is focus on the core so important? Well, imagine you define your core too narrowly. You define your business too narrowly. You'll neglect, you'll literally ignore profitable segments. You'll probably forego opportunities in revenue synergies. You'll overlook certain geographies that are relevant to you. And probably you'll underinvest in R&D. You'll forego some scale benefits. And you won't even see your competitors coming, right? This is a train company like Amtrak defining yourself as a train company as opposed to a short-haul transportation company and then figuring out a model to actually fight the airline industry. What if you define yourself too broadly? Well, that's a problem too. You'll start over-investing in unprofitable customers. You'll probably enter unprofitable geographies. You'll probably incur unnecessary costs. You'll be fighting competitors that are not fighting you. And in both cases, narrow or broad definition of the market, you'll misjudge market trends, you'll miscalculate market share, you'll set inappropriate performance targets, and you won't know who you're fighting. The very important thing that I want to tell you is that the vast majority of sustained value creators, 80% of them, focus on one core business. So I'll throw out a bit of a challenge to the part of your answer where you explain the importance of out-investing the competition. We've seen that there are some small, nimble players in certain industries that grow to be very successful. An example that comes to mind is the clothing company Bonobos. How do you think about strategy for a little guy in an industry? So why do a lot of companies succeed at a very small level? Well, first of all, when you are smaller, it is easier to fly under the radar. And so you have to get to a certain threshold level for one of the large businesses to decide that they're going to fight you. And so in the case of Bonobos, and as you know, the founder was a member of the Bain family, and in fact, one of my mentees, what they did is they created an amazing model for an incredibly niche part of the market. Individuals who wanted style to be different, affordable, convenient, and they went after that market. They got large enough that somebody said, oh, I either need to fight them or buy them, and they were bought. Reacting to some of these small players, it seems like it is really easy to suggest you need to reinvent a business. But managers often must go up against incentive systems and organizational structures that favor the legacy business. How do you reconcile those conflicting forces? And what are the best practices for reinventing a business? That's a great question. So first of all, when do you want to reinvent the business? You reinvent the business when you look out and you basically say, the profit pool in this industry, where people make money is going to change. And or the way to access that money is going to change, right? So you're Kodak and you realize that all the money in the world is being made by producing film and actually processing film. And you look out 10 years and you say, oh, oh, actually images will no longer be captured this way. They'll be captured in little SD cards and it's gonna be memory manufacturing. And then you say, because the trends in the industry are going to change, I'm gonna change my business model. And then you start exploring different things. Is there anything that I have in my asset base that I can actually repurpose. Many of these are technology examples and we can explore those later in the podcast, but let me give you a non-technology one. Marvel, what was Marvel? Magazines, comic books, and we're in the world where we're not printing paper that much and we're not using paper. And unless you're a very Nietzsche man or woman, you're not buying comics anymore. And Marvel has redefined itself into lovable, admirable characters. In many ways, they've adopted the brilliant playbook of Disney in sort of putting out there some amazing characters and creating films and Broadway shows and merchandise and stores based on that. That is a complete reinvention of that business. The one thing that I do want to tell you is I think people abandon the core business for reinvention way too early. Sustained value creators are not only focused. Sustained value creators 
become leaders in their core business, or at a minimum, deliver leadership economics in their core business. So it's very easy to make the assumption that you're all tapped out and that moving outside your business is easier. And of course, if you're fighting day-to-day with competitors, you know how hard it is to get a point of share. And when you look outside your business, you assume it's easier to do it. So there's a lot of premature abandonment of the core. And so one of the things that we work with our clients on pushing very hard at making sure you're sort of hitting full potential. One of the ways in which people abandon the core or depart or underinvest from it is by diversifying. And so a big question is, is diversification bad? But what does the data say? The data says that sustained value creators do operate outside their core, but they operate outside their core in an adjacent way. They are next to their core. Typically, they are doing something with the same customer base or they are utilizing the same set of capabilities. And so when they're doing an adjacency move, they're either adding value to core customers, they're actually leveraging their cost base even better, so they're actually reinforcing and or defending their core as well as leveraging their core capabilities. So many companies today are setting up innovation teams to address some of these emergent trends and respond to new competitors. I understand your thoughts have evolved on the effectiveness of these teams. So what makes an innovation team successful? I think in the past, the future of an industry was actually far more knowable than it is today. Now, I still think the direction of industries is knowable today. Just the landing point is not. Of course, you need innovation teams. You need venture teams. You need to try more things today simply because when you look out five or 10 years, you just don't know exactly what customers will be buying, what the nature of products or services will be, what the nature of the delivery mechanisms will be, what the nature of value chains will be, what customer journeys are going to look like, how you actually monetize your business model. So having more exploration at the edge is very important. And so in the past, did I like exploration? Less. Why? Because you would put the money into the core business, reinforce the core towards the knowable direction of your business, and you just made more money than everyone else who was less focused. Today, there's a balance. There's still an enormous amount of money to be made in the core business, but you actually have to experiment a lot more because the boundaries of your business will change. Shifting our focus to digital. Since the early 2000s, we've seemed to use digital as a panacea, with one executive at a World Economic Forum meeting saying, digital will be like air. Because this word is thrown around so often, can you explain to our listeners what is digital and how is this impacting the companies that you advise? It's a great question. And that is, in fact, the reason why I love these teams that we've been discussing, innovation teams. We are in the middle of a digital revolution. We're in the fourth industrial revolution, and digital is here. And like you said, much like the word strategy, the word digital gets overused. So what is it? At the simplest level, it's a technology that is changing the world. But that's not that helpful or that business-oriented. That's just a very technical definition. More interesting is probably to think about the fact that the technologies of today, IoT, big data, AI, visualization, robotics, 3D printing, they are actually recombinant. They are coming together. So one could actually define digital as recombinant innovation. I still think that that's not the right way to do it. I think the right way to define digital is real life use cases. In other words, it is the, a set of technologies come together to change an industry today and in the future today to create more economic value in the future to change the boundary of an industry. So examples, very quickly, a robot can do surgery. So now you can actually do better surgery with less people in the room. It's more profitable. Someday you may not need physicians in certain situations. 3D printing, right? In the past, you had to co-locate stuff. 
because you had to grab it where you made it. Now you can send a file and print it anywhere. So to me, digital is a set of use cases. Interesting way to define this is I have a, a client who's an automotive company. So how have they defined digital? They have basically said, look, digital is not a set of technologies, and it's not something that we call digital in the sort of clouds. It's three things. It's automation, it is connectivity, and it is electromobility. So digital is about my cars being able to drive themselves or partially drive themselves. It is about the cars being connected, and it is about the cars becoming more electric. And that is a probably the right level because at that level you can define use cases and you can think about how you're going to change the industry boundary. So you touched on the fourth industrial revolution, which was the main topic of the annual World Economic Forum meeting in Davos this year, which you attended as part of the Bain delegation. Can you define to us what is the fourth industrial revolution and explain why this moment over others is so significant? Yes, look, what are the basic characteristics of the fourth industrial revolution? Number one, we have an enormous amount of data. Number two, that data is integrated into platforms. Number three, those platforms have access to artificial intelligence, so they're smart. Number four, it's virtual, it's real time, and often connected to mobile devices. And number five, I can actually be both predictive and prescriptive because of this. Why is this so important? Right, because probably right now in our lives is the smallest amount of change we'll ever experience. As these technologies accelerate, we will face a lot of change. So we used to live in a world that Adam Smith defined as a world of competitive advantage or comparative advantage between nation states and where and who should be producing what. Now we're in a complex interplay between platforms and systems and goods and services that can cross national boundaries in bits and bytes. And so there's big issues, right? There's this issues around economic policy and technology policy, in particular security and privacy. So we're going to probably need institutional reform for economic cooperation. My hypothesis is we're going to move away from cooperation and more into coordination. The other issue is there's a lot of positive impacts around this automation or digital world, but we're going to have a lot of disruptions. A lot of jobs are going to disappear. And so I think we're going to have to move our societal narrative away from materialism and into humanism. And we're going to have a wealth distribution transformation that is likely going to put a lot of pressure leading to new social contracts. For people like you and I, Jonathan, it means that we never again stop educating ourselves. The world of going to school and then working is over. We're always going to school. So let's double down on the coordination factor. Can you explain more about how companies will work together to identify profit areas? You ask a very interesting question. Let me start with the simplest answer to your question. Let me rephrase the question as, how will companies work together? So one of the things that is obvious to me, and this was not true and has not been as true for the last 20 years, is that companies can no longer do everything in-house. The reality is Apple has millions of registered, licensed app developers, and that's why they have millions of apps. And so they've always had an ecosystem, right? In fact, that is how Sony with its PlayStation displaced Nintendo decades ago. But I think all companies are going to live in ecosystems. And so one of the ways in which the best companies will be defined in the future is they're going to be amazing at partnering. And you're hitting, right, a very interesting topic. In this case, you're hitting the topic of organization, like how will we organize? What will be the definition of a firm in a digital era? That is changing, but how you do strategy is probably also changing. And I think we've talked a little bit about it, but why does strategy change now? Strategy changes because the industry direction is knowable, 
but exactly the landing point is not. And the other thing that's happening is that these use cases that I defined as the best definition of digital in the business world have two components to them. Number one, they create value today. Number two, they create value and disrupt the future. And so you can no longer do strategy linearly. Henry Ford is actually quoted, I don't know if it's real or not, saying, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. What I would actually say is, today is the era of you need a faster horse and you need to reimagine the car. In every industry, we need a faster horse and we need to imagine the car. And so strategy right now, it of course asks the same questions, where to play and how to win. We actually are working in two timelines. We're working in the timeline of today forward. What are the three or five use cases that you need to be deploying today? And we're also working future back. In the car industry, it's autonomous and electric. Everyone in every industry needs to be asking, what is the autonomous and electric version of your business? And so you have these two directions in which companies will be working. Something interesting to think about is how an industry might actually change. Let's talk about automotive, which is easy to sort of get your hat around. Cars. We sell cars. Who do we sell cars to? Individuals. How do customers pay? Mostly using leasing or financing. In fact, that's how people make money. How do you deliver the offer? Via dealership, typically with really big budgets, right? We all watch the Super Bowl ads of the cars. And a lot of the R&D goes into making those cars sexier. Is the raw need of the individual to own a car? Probably not. The raw need is probably getting to the office or taking my kids to school. And if that is the case, am I selling cars? Probably not. I'm probably selling mobility services. And if I'm selling mobility services, I'm no longer selling to individuals. I'm selling to fleets. How are customers going to pay? They're not going to lease. They're going to pay some subscription. You're not going to have dealerships. This is going to go direct. You're going to have very thin brand budgets because for your 10-minute ride to the office, you don't care what you're inside. And the R&D is probably going to be very different. And so that's how the world is changing today. It is a hard world to live in because organizations are not prepared for it. I think a great example you used in class is the fact that cars are only used less than 5% of the time. Yeah, automobiles spend most of their time in a garage or in a parking lot. So we have these assets that actually don't get used, and this industry could fundamentally change. But if you are an incumbent, if you are an organization that has been in the world for many years, and this digital revolution is happening upon you, think about how complicated this is. First of all, the average company has a terrible time with IT and data. They have data. It's very hard to get it. It's very hard to pull it. There's all types of IT implementations that have gone awry. There's multiple systems, right? A lot of IT money goes into keeping the lights on versus value add. Most of the people in the world are analog, right? At, in the middle layer and the front line. And so literally that is the world you're working in. And so all of a sudden, right, we're saying competitive advantage is going to come from having amazing data and buying data and connecting it with yours to create brilliant insights. Behind this is obviously an IT platform that is amazing at grabbing data and moving data and allowing you to automate or digitize. And a set of people at all levels of the organization that are digitally literate. And the reality is that's not where we're starting from. Now, for a startup in Silicon Valley, that's true. For the average company in the Fortune 500, that is not. It's not a question of whether you can run a successful pilot. Every company can run a successful pilot. You isolate a use case and you actually say, all right, let's put a lot of resources. Let's even hire a consulting firm to run a digital pilot. I don't think that is the measure of success, although that is the starting point. The question is, how do you scale that? How do you scale and amplify that? 
retailers are going to have to do it by starting in one store and then ramping it up across stores. And service companies are probably going to do it episode by episode. But our systems are not set up to operate this way, right? So the risk management typically keeps you from taking big risks. The investment requirements are typically ROI-driven. I don't think that's the world we're in, right? There's going to be a lot more of experiment, fail, experiment, fail, experiment, fail. And so we're going to have to change how we think of risks and how we think about investments away from the ROI mentality, more into the venture mentality. And so getting into your personal consulting experience, could you compare and contrast the way you worked and advised clients earlier in your career and how you interact with them today in light of the fourth industrial revolution? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I have been a member of the PI practice at Bain & Company for many years. Think of that as our operations practice, our cost transformation practice. Think about how operations is changing today. Operations is changing everywhere from the R&D of a product to the last customer touchpoint, and probably in four ways. Today, I have end-to-end visibility. I can literally see I have full supplier and customer transparency. That creates flexibility, that creates resilience, that creates opportunities for collaboration. Supply chains, number two, are intelligent, right? So I can do design engineering and prototyping. I can do predictive planning and forecasting. I can do predictive maintenance. The automation is now smart for both products and services. And there's a next generation employee appearing in the world that can use virtual reality, augmented reality, wearables, and there's a different level of efficiency and effectiveness and safety. So what's happening in our world, right? What does this mean for companies? My clients are seeing the lines between strategy and operations blurring. Operations used to be the last mile of fulfillment. Operations today defines the possibilities of strategy at the outset. We're moving away from continuous improvement. I did that for many years. And minimizing cost, going to lowest cost, to a world of agility. Of course, I look at costs, but the flexibility, resilience, and customization of my supply chains is, is, is very important as part of the, um, the optimization algorithm. As I said before, in the past, I was mostly working within the four walls of my clients with always an option to outsource. Today, that's become a necessity. I help my clients develop and operate the partnerships that are going to allow them to win in the future. And a lot of the optimization in the past was functional. And what's happened in the digital era is that we've moved to end-to-end process optimization that actually cuts across functional boundaries. So things are changing dramatically, right? I used to be able to show up at a client with slides to talk about supply chain, and now I have a tool to create a digital twin of my client's supply chain either for the proposal process or for the first week of the case. It seems that many companies and CEOs are intensely focused on revenue growth and see that as their competitive advantage. But you've discussed before that 40% of executives in industry-leading companies say their key competitive advantage is not technology, not strategy, nor market position, but their ability to keep costs low. Why is that? To me, it's very simple. For a given price that you're able to hit in the market, lower costs means more funds. More funds either gives you better returns that creates more possibilities in terms of which investors you select to work with, or even more importantly, more funds for R&D to out-invest the competition. So if you can actually have lower costs, you know that whole virtuous cycle of strategy works better. Because when you're in the market, your returns are higher. When your returns are higher, the amount you have left to out-invest the competition is higher. And I have personally studied this. And I have studied, in particular, companies that are able to improve productivity every year for five years. If you look at, I looked at a sample of about 2,000 companies in the U.S., and was able to actually measure productivity improvements. First of all, how many companies improve productivity year on year for five years in a row? 5%. 
that 5% has significantly better shareholder performance than anyone else in the pack. And by the way, those that did it four times are better than the ones that did it three times. And that is a very important thing. Why? It reinforces the business cycle. By the way, the folks that do this, do it at all times. They get better costs during booms and they get better costs during economic recessions. Now, that's interesting that I said 5% because, by the way, probably every company in the world has a cost program. So clearly what you observe is that taking cost out is actually quite complicated. So what separates these leaders in cost productivity from the laggers? And what makes these programs so hard to sustain year over year? We have actually studied this, Jonathan, a lot. And again, it is because we have seen so many companies that have a cost program. Somewhere between 90 and 95 of the large companies in the world have a cost program. Far less of them have a successful cost reduction that is sustained. What do the cost productivity leaders do differently? Probably five things. The first one is they understand the connection between strategy and costs. And by that, I mean they know where to be best in cost versus best in class. A lot of the people that don't succeed with cost programs are peanut buttering the cost reductions. The really good ones are not. They're very nuanced. Where they're going to be best in cost, they really push to the lowest cost in that industry. And where they need to be best in class, they invest. So that's number one. The second thing is they have very clear targets. And if you don't give targets to people, they don't know where they're driving. And by the way, if the targets don't mean something, then I'm not going to hit them. Folks that have actually succeeded, essentially, they have a culture that basically says, I am going to reduce cost every year. That's the expectation. That is obviously the target. And the winners, the heroes, the kings of the business are the ones that deliver against those targets and are rewarded accordingly. The third thing is that they use those cost containment techniques that have proven to be most helpful. And typically, those are the ones that not only fix the how, but fix the what. So they're not just thinking about how we do things. They're actually rethinking all the way to the start. What am I doing? And should I change that? The fourth thing that we observe is that cost productivity leaders don't run central programs where decisions are made centrally, where the implementation is done centrally. Right? A program office, a results delivery office is always helpful. You should always have it because it's a good command and control center for your business and the initiatives. But this has to be done by the front line. And the front line typically has the ideas, and they definitely have the keys to implementation, and they absolutely have the keys to sustainability. If you don't capture the hearts and minds of the front line, to actually do the cost reductions, you're going to fail. And in today's world, I'd say the fifth thing that is happening is the use of digital enablers. The companies that are getting better at better are using those 10 technologies that are defining the fourth industrial revolution and taking costs out that way. So could you give us an example of a company that went through a successful transformation from being a laggard on the cost frontier into a leader? The question laggard to leader is less interesting than I changed my cost structure and my operations to align with my strategy. Let's take Dell. Dell started by being a company where you ordered your computer online, and it was a premium product, and everyone else was selling lower-end SKU made to stock and sold in the retail world. And Dell was incredibly successful with that model until the selling of computers became basically a commodity. If you actually had stayed with the model of creating highly premium, you would either have to become a super niche player or you would lose very quickly in the market because that type of supply chain would never generate the costs. So what did Dell do? They literally reduced the number of SKUs by over 99%. They went from a world where they made to order to make to stock with a very few simple SKUs fundamentally changed the product cost and continued winning in the market. So to me, that's a wonderful example, right? And they use one of my favorite tools, which is complexity reduction. I hardly ever go to a company and say, oh, interesting, you are very simple. 
I typically go to a company and say, oh my God, this is very complex. You're playing in too many places. You have too many SKUs. You have too many layers in your organization and your processes are very hard to follow. So a common reaction to consultants is that they'll come in and create a fancy PowerPoint with a great strategy that sits on a shelf and never gets implemented. How often do these strategies fail in the implementation phase? And as a consultant, how do you ensure that a strategy gets implemented successfully? It's a great question. I have many clients where the first thing that I get to get is a pack of decks written internally or by consultants, all of which have incredibly smart thinking, but very little implementation. And so my sense is that three things are missing. The first one is a translation of strategy to organization. What actually happens is that folks go from strategy to org structure, which I think is a mistake because all org structures are matrices. And matrices are very hard to manage. And the key to managing a matrix is understanding the decision rights at the intersection point of the node. And so one of the tools that I use in implementation is translating strategy to decisions. And we've studied this. High-performance organizations are A, two times more likely than anyone else to clarify where the value is created. For example, a pharma company knows that the speed of drug development and getting to market is worth billions of dollars. High-performance organizations are 2.5 times more likely to define the decisions that matter. And they're four times more likely to design their entire organization, not around the structure, but around the decisions. So think about how that's different, right? Instead of asking the question, do I have a clear or compelling mission? You ask, is the mission giving enough clarity to make decisions? Instead of asking, is my management team cohesive? You ask the question, are they aligned around priorities and then providing consistent direction in their decisions? Instead of asking, do we have the right information systems? You're going to ask the question, is the information at the decision point exactly what I need it to be? Instead of asking, is compensation competitive? You're going to ask the question, do our measures of performance focus on people making the right decisions quickly and effectively? So number one, translate your strategy to organization via a decision-making framework. That to me is really important. The second thing that actually makes a big difference in implementation is repeatable models. Is putting everything into a model that you do all the time, like McDonald's makes a burger in every country in the world, in every one of their locations. Why do I like repeatability? Why do we like it at Bain? Better learning curve effects, less complexity, faster, more reliable decision-making, strategic clarity, much easier to understand the customer's ability to think ahead. So I like companies that very quickly say, how do I translate my strategy into my repeatable model, into the set of motions that I do in the front line? The third thing that is really important is, look, a lot of the failure is because change management is terrible. And it's not that it's terrible, it's just incomplete. Change management is typically started too late. It's focused on minimizing change. It's assuming that change is impossible to predict or manage and that people are irrational. Bain and I have a very different perspective. You start change management the day you start strategy. You don't wait until the end. You accept that change is disruptive and you communicate it as such. You know that delivery risk is predictable and you find the information. And you go beyond good leadership and day-to-day -day management to really adapting a playbook of change. So beyond what people do today, which is great communication and a PMO, a program management office, you have to do two things. Number one, you have to define what the frontline has to do different. Strategy ultimately is about two things. One of them is the change in the behavior of the frontline. If you don't define that and the hearts and minds of the frontline change, you will fail. The second thing is you need a delivery mechanism, a connection between the executive room and the frontline. That's called middle management. We call it the sponsorship spine. 
If you don't think of your sponsors, if you don't think of your sponsorship spine, you're simply not going to reinforce the right behavior. So you have to have really good sponsors. They set the right context. They establish a fair process. They anticipate and manage risks. They accelerate adoption. That is what middle management needs to be doing in change management. Let's shift gears a bit to the nonprofit sector, which I find really interesting. You've served for many years on the board of the Perot Museum, which is a nonprofit with a science and art museum in Dallas, Texas. During your tenure, you oversaw the creation of a strategic vision for the foundation. Can you describe how strategy changes when you're dealing with a nonprofit? There are many things that are essentially the same, right? The virtuous cycle of business was choose a battlefield, out-execute, out-invest, and do it again. There's also a virtuous cycle in not-for-profits, which is create amazing vision or mission that gets funded, develop amazing programs, deliver them, achieve results, and then go back to the community or the funding base and on the basis of results, start the cycle again. And you have to ask the same exact questions. Where am I going to play and how am I going to win? That doesn't change. But what changes? Look, in the world of business, you optimize for economics, shareholder value. In the not-for-profit business, you optimize for mission impact subject to an economic constraint. So you have to have very clear alignment on mission and on the intended impact. And you have to have a lot of thinking on how you're going to measure that from a diagnostic phase to an implementation phase. The second thing is that adjacencies may be more important in the not-for-profit sector. Why is that? Because some adjacencies may generate the funds that fund your mission. That's very important. That's why universities have two types of centers of institutes, the ones that make money and the ones that don't. And then one thing that is really important is collaboration, to me, is really, really important in the not-for-profit business. There's too many small, fractured not-for-profits trying to do the same thing in the same market. And so I believe that when you have all of these multiple players working towards similar goals, I think there should be more partnerships and more collaborations. As a senior partner at Bain & Company, people are the resources that you offer to clients to solve some of their most toughest problems, including how to manage their own talent issues. So you have a unique perspective in managing exceptional talent. What do you see as the big areas of opportunity in talent management? Financial capital was so expensive for so many years that we created amazing systems to control it, to the point that in most companies, the CEO has to sign every time a computer is bought. That is financial management, right? And in fact, you know, if you steal a pencil, right, you can get fired. What's amazing to me is that talent in today's world with low interest rates is far more expensive than financial capital. And yet we don't have any mechanism to manage it. Anyone can set up a meeting with a lot of very expensive people and waste their time. They're not going to get fired for that, but they'll get fired for stealing the pencil. And that is terrible. So we've studied this. And what we find is that there are three things that are happening today. Number one, there's a lot of wasted time. Number two, talent is not directed to the right opportunities. And number three, there's not enough inspiring and engaging of the workforce. So let me start with time. If you look at people's calendars, you will see too many meetings. When I say this, everyone nods their head. When you study those meetings, where decisions made, you uh, move the ball forward on the brainstorming. Did you shut down something you needed to shut down? People was like, no, that's not what we were doing. I was there listening and kind of doing email and thinking about my next meeting. One of the things that needs to happen in the world is we need to reduce the number of meetings. There's just too many of them. By the way, we've created very complex businesses that have too many nodes of interaction, and that creates meetings. So simplifying businesses is a very important thing to do. And I think, and one of the things I recommend to my clients is creating a zero-based meeting budget. Start from zero. Cancel all your meetings and only add the ones where you're going to either have a discussion that will lead to a decision or one that will inform a decision or an action. Otherwise, I'm not sure why you're having the meeting. The second thing is that the big difference between the best companies and the rest is not the amount of A talent they have, it's what they do with their A talent 
or their best talent. So what the best companies out there have about 16 or 17% high performers, the rest about 13 to 14%. The difference is not how many high talent players you have for that particular company, it's where they are. Best companies, A roles have A players. Other companies, A players are spread around the organization. The other thing is that false force multiplier effect, which is create teams with many A players. Think of a NASCAR pit crew in, out, in seconds or parts of a second. What happens if you put a B player in that, right? That racer is not going to win that race. One of the things you actually have to do is be incredibly disciplined in understanding who are your A players and where you put them. The last thing is that there's a big difference between a satisfied employee who goes to work, an engaged employee that goes to work and tries to do the right thing, and an inspired employee, one that literally is trying to do the right thing all the time. And again, the big difference between the best companies and other companies is just a percentage of inspired employees. And this is about leadership. It is about leadership. It is about teaching your leaders to inspire others. Typically, it requires collapsing the distance between the front line and the C-suite. It typically requires creating more autonomy in jobs. In today's world, it means agile ways of working. It is those types of things that lead to inspiration. And so at Bain, you've credited two partners with teaching you important lessons about consulting early in your career. And you've since become heavily invested in mentorship at Bain, including creating the group's Latinos at Bain, which is dedicated to attracting and retaining qualified Latin American and Hispanic talent. What were some unexpected lessons that you learned from these mentoring relationships? The great thing about mentors is that they can see things that you cannot see. So I don't know that it was unexpected, but it was certainly very helpful. One of my mentors, Chris Bierley, I remember him saying, Hernan, the process of consulting is only 50% about analytics. The other 50% is understanding the organization and the motions of the organization and the leadership team and how they will actually internalize our storyline, our insights and data, how they will become inspired to take action, et cetera. And so that fundamentally changed who I was. And my other mentor, Phyllis Yale, was incredibly helpful to me one day when she said, Arnaud, you don't need to have every answer. It made it a lot easier to be who I am and to be able to look at a CEO in the eyes and said, great question. I haven't thought about it, but I'm going to come back to you with it. It took a lot of pressure out. It made it a lot easier to do my job. So Hernan, you've had a lasting impact here at Johnson, first as a student and then serving as a faculty member and an advisor. What advice do you have for our listeners on how to develop themselves as business leaders for the future? Absolutely. Look, there's four things that I think are really important. The first one is that if you have a destination you want to go to, sometimes it's hard to get there in one step. The compounding or cumulative effect of moves is really important. So as you think about your destination, think about the set of moves that get you there, not the one move that gets you there. The second thing that I would always say to my mentees is, every interaction in the world is a moment to gain or lose equity. And guess what? That's how I live my life. Every time I interact with somebody, I want to gain equity. I want to have a very large bank account with everyone in the world. The third piece of advice that I give to people on the professional front is understand the culture of where you're going. Is it a good fit? Because I see way too many people attracted to an industry or a company and not thinking about whether the culture is going to be good for them. The culture at Bain & Company has been amazing to me, and that's why I'm successful. And the last thing is not a professional piece of advice. It is We spend too much time of our lives in professional settings and thinking about our resume. And as one of my mentors, Tom Tierney, once said to me, are you also working on the backside of your resume? Are you working on the personal side? On what your friends and your children and your spouse will say about who you are? On the lasting contributions you made to the community, your schools, and society as a whole? And so my biggest piece of advice is, as you're building that resume, remember the back of the resume and the person that you are. And so for the incoming 2021 MBA class, you now have a better understanding of the origin of your application question. 
which asked applicants to explain what they would put on the back of their resume. Hernan, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for your continued work with Johnson, and thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you, Jonathan. Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by the Present Value team, Michael Brady, Harrison Job, Bernardo Espinoza, Caroline Wright, Serena Alavia, James Feld, and Jack Moriarty. I'm your host for this episode, Jonathan Tin. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz, music by Poddington Bear, Logo by Kalechi Pomongo, and special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center and Resonate Recordings for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.